1: Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Real Wealth, Real Health. This is Adapia Dorico, and today we are having a conversation with Jillian Murish. Jillian Murish has broad experience in institutional investment as an entrepreneur, and specifically in the financial technology industry and real estate crowdfunding. I am honored to call Jillian a close friend and one of the rising stars in the financial technology industry. Jillian is a co-founder and chief executive officer of Peer Asset Management. Prior to founding Peer, she was the executive vice president of Capital Markets at Patch of Land, one of the earliest real estate crowdfunding platforms, where she built one of the first institutional whole loan sales programs in the real estate marketplace lending industry. And before this, she worked with technology clients in the Capital Markets Group at a leading middle market investment bank, Houlihan Loki. With an eye for trends in the future of finance, she's paved a path of excellence and integrity throughout her career. Her knowledge and experience and her openness in sharing her story and insights are invaluable for our listeners and to anyone who seeks to understand a little more about the mechanics of finance and how this relates to their own goals and knowledge and education around building a healthy financial foundation. Hi, Jillian. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Great to be here. I am so excited to have you on as one of our first guests not only because I've known you for so many years but truly because of the wealth of experience and inspiration and knowledge and just expertise that you have with like everything ranging from investing to real estate to eat to all the alternative assets under the Sun um, so it might be a little hard for us to hone it in but we're going to try because I I want you to tell the world everything that you know. (laughs) 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 To get started, just to to level set with everyone who's listening. Um, Tell us about yourself. Tell us especially about your professional background so that people can get to know you um, as the professional that you are.
0: Certainly. Well, thank you for that kind introduction. I'm I'm not, I, I will try to, to live up to your, um, your, your kind words. So, um, you know, if looking, looking back at, I guess, if we start, you said on the professional side, um, I was a very young entrepreneur. So I started my career um, building a business uh, around um, cell phone accessories. So we mainly focused on uh, cell phone cases. I built that business and sold it. Um, and that was you know, really my first job was running my own company, and um, you know, I, I left that and, and said, you know, what's next, and you know, what I realized my favorite part about that entrepreneurial venture was actually raising the capital for the business and then selling and negotiating the sale of the business. Uh, one of my mentors, you know, for good or for not, <laughs> recommended that investment banking was just that, raising capital, selling, buying businesses, et cetera. And so I joined uh, at its infancy, the growth equity practice at Houlihan Loki, a middle market investment bank. Uh, I I joined the headquarters here in LA. Um, We built that practice where we uh, were fortunate enough to raise series A's, B's and C's for later stage technology companies. And it was really uh, during my time in the capital markets practice at Houlihan that I really learned um, how to build businesses uh, in a sustainable way. Um, and then, you know, how do you build out headcount? Uh, how do you track expenses versus revenue? Um, you know, how, do, how does the venture world uh, see these types of businesses? What metrics matter? Um, which founders built better businesses than others, right? What, what did it take to, to really build that you know, big business? Um, I got to see institutionally funded companies versus founder bootstraps. Um, funded companies, and um, I think that was where I started to shape my my vision of of how I thought it was best to build businesses. Um, So after spending time there, I was itching to get back to the operator side, and I joined uh, a fintech company in Los Angeles um, called Realty Mogul, and that firm was actually the first to do real estate equity crowdfunding, or I believe they claim to be one of the very early entrants in the space. and I got connected to them through one of the venture partners who had led their Series A, and it was there that I really um, started to explore the world of alternative investments, and um, but saw it through a, a, an interesting lens of how do we create financial products for um, the investor, right? And and how are we uh, how are we thinking about what people want to invest in and why, and what impact does that have on people's lives? And so. You know, during that uh, time at Realty Mogul, I was very focused on equity investing in real estate, um, and I had a vision for a type of business um, that that could be productive on the debt side of real estate crowdfunding. And I started doing research on that and came across uh, a firm called Patch of Land, which actually that's where Aditi and I met. And I joined I joined that firm actually because of you, and I think you know that you were you were my tipping point. And um, it was an interesting business model where it was um, you know, similar to the, to the consumer models of the world like Lending Club and Prosper, uh, but it was doing peer-to-peer online um, lending in the real estate space. And so I joined Patch of Land um, you know, relatively early on and um, built the capital markets practice really from the ground up. Um, when I had joined firm was focused on peer-to-peer lending, where it was um, $10,000, $20,000, $50,000 checks at a time that were gathered together to make one loan. Um, And to scale the lending side of the business quicker, um, I built out the institutional back end. So I I went and acquired our first warehouse lines, uh, built out a whole loan sale program um, with behemoth billion-dollar credit funds, purchasing loans in a forward flow manner uh, from the business, which Really helped um, accelerate the growth of, of that firm kind of in in multiple magnitudes per year, so it was a blast and and there was really where I saw um, and how the credit markets uh, were working and what was efficient in the credit market and really what wasn't and uh, it was during my time at Patch of land that I came up with an idea for a way to um, to invest capital in a way I thought was more efficient than what I was seeing seeing out there at the time. Um, And I saw that there were pockets in this alternative lending space that really lacked liquidity, which meant that if you could come in and bring capital to those places that lacked liquidity, you could make outpaced returns without having to increase the risk you were taking. Um, And so I decided to leave Patch of Land to launch a fund where we would do that and act as a liquidity provider in the alternative lending space um, and go in and buy pools of loans in the secondary market or um, provide warehouse lines to lenders Um, and we did just that so i started um, my my current company it's called peer asset management that's p-i-e-r asset management Um, two years ago or two yeah two and a half years ago actually and time flies, <laughs> and I've been uh, building this business uh, ever since. Um, I teamed up with an incredible co-founder, um, Connor New, who uh, was in the fund management space in the alternative lending um, vertical for you know a number of five, five to seven years prior to starting this firm. Um, and he had a really unique skill set in fund management, and I had a unique skill set uh, by actually sitting on the operator side. And we teamed up. And started this firm, and so that's that's what I'm doing today: is taking investor capital and then investing it in the credit
2: uh, sector. Uh, super, super interesting, though. Uh, really cool story. You know, we always love to chat, you know, with other entrepreneurs, and I think a lot of our investors are entrepreneurs too, so they can, you know, kind of associate with all the things that that you're saying. Uh, one thing that that stuck out to me that I think might be, you know, interesting thing to comment on, you know, is this idea that the movement rather to institutional capital and kind of what you felt necessitated that. Because, you know, if you, if you kind of look back to why crowdfunding exists and it kind of being a product of the JOBS Act of, of 2012 and the idea being that there are a lot of just, you know, average accredited investors who want to participate in these types of transactions that were previously off, either off-limits to them or hard to find or unavailable for any kind of variety of reasons. And you know, it seems like you guys started out peer to peer with these individual investors, but then kind of quickly realized you know, the larger capital that comes with the institutions kind of made more sense. And so I, I'd really just like to get your thoughts on you know, that, um, that kind of progression um, as you thought about it in that particular moment.
0: Sure. So I think at the time, um, the, the shift to bringing more institutional capital on board is really attractive from a growth standpoint. So it's the quickest way to scale revenue because you have to be offloading these loans somewhere. And if you're um, selling them to accredited investors, it just takes so many more individuals and so much more growth and expense to build that investor base than simply bringing on $1 billion credit fund that can fund 100% of your lending activity in a given year. And so being within the four walls of that firm, Patch of Land, that was a very attractive Route. I think if, you, if I go up 30,000 feet and look back down at the biz, that type of business model, I see a really interesting opportunity that can arise when you use institutional capital um, in a way to actually allow individual investors to diversify further than they would have been able to had you not had the institutional firepower uh, behind you and behind that lending engine you have. So, for example, um, if you had $100 million worth of um, peer-to-peer kind of individual accredited investor demand for your lending product in one year, um, you could offer them $100 million worth of loans, say that's 1,000 loans. Well, if you have an institution that can increase that demand twofold, you know, maybe you're having the institutions buy up half of individual loans, and then you can put twice as many loans out on your platform. So, you know, by the time that I had left Patch of Land, we actually started using that model where we would use institutions to take out parts of loans and then fund the remainder uh, with accredited investors. And it just allowed for for much more diversification and more loan offerings that would have been possible without institutions. So if I look back at the shift from accredited to institutional capital and, and think about how I would do it differently next time or, you know, focus. Harder in one area. I think it would be kind of uh, marrying the two in a more tandem way than I think I did at the time. Um, but there are businesses being built out there today that are doing and trying to focus, um, you know, more on that um, because I do think that the accredited investor really has um, a lot of stability in our marketplace and can provide, um, you know, longer time, you know, longer time horizon capital. Um, be more flexible, do more of what I call make sense transactions, and they're not bound by credit facilities that a bank is putting on a big credit fund. Um, And so I think, you know, it is, I think everyone, you know, people talk about it as that shift from from accredited to institutional, and that certainly happened at many, many lenders. Um, But I think that the platforms that tried to do it more in tandem or have it be a um, more, symbiotic relationship, I think. Um, I think we're doing it right, in my view.
1: So I'm going to jump in here, because um, I was just thinking about, well, because of course we work together, and when I started there, it was very much, let's go for all the individuals, like go the peer-to-peer model, and seeing it evolve with you and allowing that to scale which really works for for debt because it's such a fast transaction and such a fast turnaround. Is that what you're seeing? And this is a little bit of a different question for you because you're doing um, different kind of credit transactions now. But I wanna I wanna dig in a little bit into the the credit side because you've become so passionate about it that you founded your your an entire firm on this. Um, Does that, does that work for your business as well? Or is the individual accredited investor doing make sense transactions? Do you see that only really working in, let's say real estate crowdfunding, or is that also working in, in your space?
0: Oh, yes. That's a great question. So, um, in our space, um, it, you know, certainly is working. Um, uh, you know, we, we span across consumer lending, small business lending and real estate debt within the fund um, that we mostly operate here. And um, accredited investors are able to uh, take part in that fund vehicle alongside um, large institutions like foundations and endowments. Um, We have a multi-billion dollar registered investment advisor, a wealth manager, who invests in the same vehicle that um, a dentist from Seattle, Washington invests in. so we very much adopted that model internally, where uh, we can be using institutional capital alongside and with the exact same terms as accredited investors um, in in our fund. So you know I, I once again, I think in building businesses and how I think about building businesses, you want a very diversified base of customers and clients. And so when you're running a hedge fund or credit fund like myself, uh, our clients are our investors and Uh, Having one or two really big clients, I don't think builds a very stable business. And, you know, I would much rather have 200 clients that are diversified with uh, different liquidity needs and different events happening in their lives um, than simply one or two clients that can go away and and take your whole business with it. So that's, yeah, that's my view, view there in terms of building successful businesses and accredited investors participating. Right.
1: And you've, and this is great because you actually, you actually pivoted into the question that I wanted to ask you. <laughs> um, <laughs> just we're always on the same, on always on the same um, line of, of thought, um, yeah. which is like your biggest lessons and learnings about building businesses in the finance and the investment industry. Because as I've seen you develop and and like grow your career and grow this company with Peer, you've taken bits and pieces from all the past things that you've done and you're a small business like, like us, like alpha investing, we're small. We're not a big company running really high overhead or a ton of employees, but you know, we do our volume and you're doing a lot of volume with a small team. So I'm curious what you learned along the way that allowed you to do what you're doing in a small business way, but yet operating on big numbers.
0: Yes. Yes. So I think um, when I heard that question, initially, I have, I have a few trains of different thought. So I think the first one was actually, or the first train of thought I, I went down was you have to know what you're an expert at and what you're not. And in the areas that you're not, you need to partner with uh, folks who are. And so when I started this business, um, you know, I knew I was an expert at understanding the way in which the alternative lending capital markets ecosystem fits together and where are there gaps of of lack of capital that i can put money in structure it correctly and get outpaced returns that's what i know i'm an expert at but i've never run a credit fund i have not even worked at a hedge fund never once so what did i do wanting to start this business i went and found a partner where that is all he's done for the last 18 years like that is it right And so, you know, he's literally been at a hedge fund or running his own credit fund for, I think it's 17 years, maybe 18. And um, and so, when you look at a bunch of these other businesses in the space, you know, many of these uh, fintech companies that started off, and you know, some did well, some faltered. I think a big problem was that the founding team didn't understand or wasn't willing to understand their core competencies versus what that type of business needed. So you know, really having three technologists founding a alternative lending company in my view probably is not the most productive um, way way to attack that you should probably have one credit founder one technologist and then um, you know maybe one broader capital markets type finance person or or an expert at that specific asset class right so I think you know building businesses it's the team and, and understanding your core competencies or your gaps and just You know, building from there, there's a very attractive opportunity in this uh, alternative asset space to build uh, big businesses in terms of revenue, in terms of assets, in terms of volume of product um, with a smaller, uh, more nimble team. And, you know, if you can create repeatable processes, uh, make everything efficient with uh, technology, even as a finance shop. Um, you can really cut down the number of back end folks you need to be doing operations and processing. Um, And with that, you can actually start out building a business that's profitable within the first few years, um, which is quite different than um, the venture capital backed model, where you do need five or $10 million to pump into technology um, in the first year alone, right? A five or $10 million spend in one year um, to build that type of business. And um, you know, you're, constantly um, running against your time clock of when you run out of capital and when the next capital raise has to happen at the equity level of of the operating company. And in my view, in building a business like that, um, there are certain spaces that certainly warrant that. So for example, um, like consumer-facing apps where where you need a network effect, like a Facebook or an Amazon, you have to have mass adoption for the business itself to actually work right? If Facebook didn't have mass adoption, the business doesn't work at all. The beauty of this business model where you're managing capital and investing it in credit or for you managing capital, putting it, you know, helping people gain access to equity investments in real estate. um, The great thing is you can do five projects just as well as you can do a hundred projects in one year and your business works just the same as long as you scale your costs. And so, and, and there's a flip side to that, even actually by keeping things smaller and tight, you may have a greater advantage. So, it's, I think it's a different business model and the space that we both operate in uh, lends itself to being lean and mean and, um, and you can scale in a profitable manner uh, and be, and take that type of business model, whereas if you're Facebook or an Amazon, the mass adoption really does um, lend itself to needing to invest heavily in technology year after year. And go into that fast venture backed model, which, you know, and going off on a tangent slightly, some of these peer to peer businesses, you know, I think could have used a bit more of the, um, of the profitable growth model that was left in the dust, um, which typically is what specialty finance companies operate as. right? You grow profitably um, with a focused core competency of what you're the best at. Whereas I think you know, many of those tried to, tried to build as if they were a technology company only, um, and that led to some problems and some falling out of earlier platforms. Um, but I think we're seeing staying power of those platforms that built on the right foundation. Um, and for example, your, your business, right? you right. staying power, built slower um, with your exact core focus of what your expertise is. And here you are rocking it. And um other yeah. firms aren't, right? We've seen shakeout and fallout of other firms. Um, I think because of that mismatch of the growth model. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And and you know, from from our time um together, because I was well, I think I employee number one at gotcha yes. land. And so yeah, I'm that crazy cat that just says, okay, let's let's go for it. But you know, it, it's such a different real estate is such a different business. It's not in my opinion, right, a technology business. The beauty, though, of let's say crowdfunding from the tech perspective, because it has the legal perspective with the Jobs Act, and then it has the tech perspective of bringing things online, it, it really brought to the attention of the industry the need for streamlining and efficiencies and transparency because of both the consumer model and the technology that, that forced people um, incumbents as well, because a lot of incumbent real estate firms as well, you've seen them like up their game with their marketing, um, with their websites, they have investor portals, but it's in service to the core business of real estate, as opposed to, you know, this idea that I, I mean, I, I had, I drank that Kool-Aid in the beginning too, where I thought, Oh, yeah, let's do it. Technology is going to upend the real estate industry. And it's just, it's not.
0: <laughs> I think it's so. I gonna... like the phrase tech enabled. Like we're enabling, yes. enabling the real estate industry to perform better by frankly, touching it up to the 21st century. Um, like you said, ancillary businesses like servicing businesses uh, who service real estate loans, um, you know, they, many of them were run off of paper files until five years ago. I mean, that is right. wild, right? And I think a lot of it is clawing and bringing the real estate industry into our century, um, and then enabling and, and helping make the businesses more efficient. Um, and I do think that um, one of the areas that you know we're never going to replace humans is the investing in the equity of commercial real estate properties. That is a bespoke, a bespoke, uh, you know, skill set where you're analyzing very particular individual things and teaming up with humans and people who've been around and know that exact block corner of the city um, and known the last five restaurants that cycled through that piece of real estate, um, partnering with those experts, I think, is you know crucial and can't, can't be replaced. And so you know, I think that leads to some another topic, actually, of building uh, businesses and how I view this uh, finance investment firm space is that we really have to be particular about those that we partner with and it goes down to understanding your expertise and for me myself and in the way that we invest out of our fund, we go invest um in lenders who are who have lent for 30 years in the real estate space and that is the expert we go to right and i think synonymous on your end you are going and working with sponsors who have put Hundred million dollars to work in one specific corner of a city, and they know exactly who's been in every building. You know who's coming in and doing the build out, et cetera. And I don't think that can be replaced with technology fully. Right. It right. can be enabled no. and made sharper.
1: Yes. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. They know the ins and the outs, and what I've what I've noticed too um, with uh, with the sponsors is that they buy properties off market. And a lot of times they like fall into properties, let's say, because maybe they were like the third bidder and the first one fell out. And there's all of these, I don't know if you want to call them politics, but it's relationships and it's, um, you know, it's being there. And it is, like you said, it's like one corner of one city is very different than another corner of another city. And so that kind of expertise, yeah, no, you can't replace it with technology. Though you and I have both seen the data side. No, so we tried. <laughs> of, right? Yeah,
0: we tried. <laughs> we tried.
1: <laughs> but you know, I, I think where the where the tech actually really helps everyone uh, has been on the data side. Just the amount and the, the transparency of data that's coming available. I mean, it costs a lot to have access to it, but it is there. And as cities take better data, it's and I'm talking about real estate now. And for, for your business, it's also um it's all data driven on the consumer oh, and, and business lending side. I mean, without without those numbers, like you're flying
0: blind. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And and you know, for example, in consumer lending, when we're pricing out a portfolio here, you know, we um uh, our, our chief investment officer will take 400 to 1,000 data points into account when when analyzing and pricing up a loan, and that's you know, consumer lending. The amount of data available is incredible, and yet it's a human brain creating the pricing model, uh, looking at the portfolio overall, factoring in uh, qualitative factors on top of quantitative factors, and then pricing out uh, the the correct uh, price to purchase portfolio. So that availability of data allows the human underwriting to be uh, that much more sophisticated i think you're right and it's been incredible i'm from house canary to you know i'm not sure the other platforms that that you use for your real estate data but um i know it's it's, there's a
1: plethora. Yeah, there's there's a lot. Even like the 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 basic like co stars, and then if you're following, you know, we I really like to follow um, John Burns, who they focus more on the single family rental space, mm. but that single family asset because it it is the substrate of American living that data is really important because we might be looking, let's say at migration data for, for jobs, like people moving to different areas and like where are people going? There's these migration patterns um, mm. and like they're following the jobs and the, and the companies are following cheaper real estate to some degree. And it's like, it, it really is these interesting, like mini, mini cycles, um, more like spirals that, that the data tells a really interesting kind of story. But I personally find, the single-family data set really interesting because it also ties into what well, behavioral economics and what is the consumer doing and how are they living? Even suburbs are completely being reimagined now. They're not what they used to be back in the '50s. People, you know, there's that. There's a lot of um, oh, I don't know, like shade if that's the right word, but you know, mm-hmm. suburbs don't have um, the, the best connotation, but now suburbs are being developed out as like mini, all-encompassing all communities so that people don't have to leave because so many people can work from home now. And it's totally shifting the way that people are living in a city, who's living in a city, um, and the, the way the demographics are moving. Anyway, I think it's really fascinating.
0: Oh, well, we fully agree. And um, we, have, we have dashboards up in our office of, um, you know, many charts and data sets that feed into them. And, um, you know, are constantly using that type of information to make our investing decisions.
1: Well, yeah. Cause you're investing in loans that are basically people's like credit cards and, uh, business loans. And like, that's driving so much of the economy. So like you have like really early indicators oh, yeah. on sentiment.
0: Oh yes, yeah. And, um, and it, critical that we stay on top of that. I mean, something interesting in, in the way that I, I view the credit space today is um, there, are, I, or maybe this isn't interesting, I'd be curious to hear your thoughts on this, but you know, the, the way that we've been analyzing the credit market uh, is that we're certainly in later innings. I don't believe anyone would debate me on that. Um, and because of that, the investing opportunity, you know, some, some could say, oh, it's you know, hold in cash, um, if you held in cash the last five or six years, you would have missed out on uh, some of the best returns in the & p 500 and you can't predict that, and people were saying even five years ago we were getting toward the tail end. Um, yeah. and so my view is we you know it's not it's in, incredibly difficult to time the bottom or the top. and so what do you do in these times? I say opportunity doesn't go away. I say it changes. and so the way that we've changed our investing activity at Pierre um, is by, we look at shorter duration opportunities and that's how we've um, decided to approach this timing in the market uh, or the time we are we are in the market cycle. And um, by doing that, we can be able to move to cash quickly um, to take advantage of um, you know, illiquid assets when the downturn does occur. Um, so that means for us, instead of investing in 10 you know, year type of credit, we're investing in 12 months or six months. And you know, I think it, once again it lends itself well um to certain types of projects and in the equity real estate space i would be curious you know what what things you're seeing that are interesting and where you're you know focusing versus not because during this time like we said the opportunity to invest does not go away there are certainly ways to capture the market cycle and invest smart in equity real estate today no doubt um and I'd be curious, are you guys focused on a certain sector lately, or is there um, you know something that is is a theme you're capturing?
1: yeah no yeah definitely we um, we're really focused on multifamily it still drives uh, a lot of business and it's still very much in demand and a lot of that has to do with essentially the decreasing ability for people to by the home that we were talking about, the single family home. And that phenomenon hasn't changed. So so even though in the last like five years, banks have loosened up on um, the down payment amounts, right? For a while there, like it had to be 20% or you could not get a mortgage. Um, Even though that's loosened up a little bit, there still is the issue of um, rising living costs and, the essentially like if your costs are so high there's student loans involved like there's all this credit that you know so well about it's really hard for people to save money for a down payment even if that down payment is five percent because price of everything is going up so you know five percent of 200 five years ago but that now that property's gonna go for five 600. So you're, you know, you're getting further and further behind. Um, and actually that's one of the reasons that people are actually driving into smaller sort of like even tertiary markets to buy a home because it's the only place that they can afford to buy a home if they want one. Mm. So multifamily remains really strong. And we, um, we are looking mostly at class B, um, some class C, and, um, I'm actually going to let, oops, I'm actually going to let, um, Daniel jump in here with some of this stuff because he's the one that works mostly with the sponsors. And the second category that we're super focused in is the senior living, um, oh, and yeah. assisted living care, um, category.
2: Yeah. And so just come on top of what you just said, Adapia, I think there are larger macro trends that, you know, we find to hold true, and you know, as as the market changes, we're always opportunistically, you know, looking at at different asset classes and different deal types and, and markets and what have you. Uh, but we circle back really to to two common themes. You know, one is that people are renting more than they're buying; they need places to live, and particularly coming into what many folks believe will be a recessionary environment. You know, workforce housing, in particular, uh, you know, is expected to remain strong. Know, during any type of you know, recession-like environment, right? And then on the senior housing side, um, the population's aging, people are living longer, and we're still six, seven, maybe eight years out from baby boomers like formerly entering assisted living facilities. And yeah. despite the fact that there's been a lot of development work going on in that asset class, you know, we're still undersupplied. And you know, particularly in, in the senior housing space, the types of projects that we like are the ones that you know, are currently owned by the non institutional investor the the mom and pop right it's a group that yeah. maybe has a you know 50 to 100 unit uh, assisted living or memory care facility and you know maybe they've owned it for 20 30 years or so and you know, they really haven't put into place you know the institutional kind of management that you know some of these larger groups uh, are are able to to do and you know the trade off is that you know, there's just a lot of inefficiencies at that level. And so if we can come in, you know, acquire something uh, at a favorable basis with some upside that comes from better management that maybe comes from the result of some uh, interior renovations and upgrades that comes from you know, repositioning of the property in the marketplace. Uh, we think there are opportunities to you know, kind of achieve that, that alpha that, that we're looking for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Great yeah so
1: I want to spend the last few minutes on um, something that's near and dear to my heart um, which is well financial empowerment probably why I started working in banking when I was 18 I had a pretty pretty set in my mind that it was important Um, yo yes Um, it's crazy. I, I just gave a, a new keynote, and I, I was telling the story about I started when I was eighteen, and then you know when I when I was thirty eight, I kind of hit what I felt like was like the pinnacle of this like financial career um, before really jumping into this um, smaller business side, uh, w- doing this with alpha investing, and it was kind of weird to think that that's already been twenty years. But anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, so like my personal values, I know them there. I have very strong personal values, not just on the financial empowerment, but also the people that I work with, hence alpha investing, hence like you and I are still in touch. Like what are some of your personal values and goals and how have they evolved um, throughout your career? Oh, I love this question.
0: So when Connor and I set out to start peer asset management, we uh sat down and started having um you know what i called were you know co-founder i don't know, deep dives and so we would talk through this and and that was what i i decided was the most important factor in a co-founder outside of um just you know technical know-how and so he fit the bill uh from a technical standpoint um but did we have those same principles and values to grow a business in a way um that was harmonious to our uh, work day that flew, you know, st- and flowed well into our um, home lives. And so when we set out to start this business, we uh, put together a founding principles book that we wanted to live by and wanted our employees to live by. Um, and, you know, really, they're very simple. And they developed over the course of my career. And I'm so grateful I had the opportunity to, to put them all in one cohesive kind of list. And, and really try and stay true to that uh, in this business venture and pick them up along the way. Um, I, think I can list them off quickly. Number one is be good, and that's operate with social and environmental awareness. Uh, the other one is work with a quality talent. And um, this one we've touched on a bit during our talk, but the way that I like to define a quality talent Um, And what we look for here at Pierre is uh, to work with a team of what we call smart creatives. Um, It's a term that we took out of the book, How Google Works. Have either of you read that?
1: No, no, but it's on my list.
0: Yes, I must send you a copy. (laughs) Yes, please. It's a fantastic book. And uh, a smart creative is really defined. uh, it, It has a longer definition. but. Essentially, it's someone who's not limited in their access to the company's information and computing power. You know, they take risks. They are—they're not punished or held back in any way when those risky initiatives fail. Um, they speak up if they disagree with something. They get bored easily. They are you know, multidimensional, combine tech depth with business knowledge, and and add a creative flair to it. Um, they're not the the knowledge workers that we see often, um, at least in the traditional sense. They're—they're they're this. Um, smart creative that goes out into the world and um, you know, sees things a bit as an entrepreneur, um, but with a foundational technical know-how um, that creates a really uh, powerful employee contribution. So um, I see Connor as that's my business partner as in uh, smart creative, and that's the team that we built here. So be good, A quality talent, health is our third one. Um, and that you know drills down to personal health. Um, automate, automate, automate is our fourth one so we use technology to automate all repeatable processes within our business so we are the most tech forward uh, fund um, that I know of period like our um, head of operations codes in SQL. like who's head of operations at a hedge fund code? <laughs> <laughs> right, and, right. and and so we you know that's said once again in, in hiring and and filling that role um, that, that was a key tenant is automate 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 transparency is is our fifth. Um, profitability is fixed. And um, that's the last one. So, um, you know, building a business where transparency is critical amongst our team, but also to our clients as, you know, being in this business, um, you and I, that was one of the reasons we set out to build of Land was to create transparency to the accredited investor that they could actually see and choose and pick what they were investing in instead of going into this big financial engineered product that took down our financial system in 2008 and that was something that has stayed true in my heart to this day and building here is um building a business where we are fully transparent to our investors and um and then to our employees we keep the doors open when we have meetings at our office Um, we we don't have a um kind of a bureaucratic or um stratified type of work environment Um, you know at every our most junior employee can speak casually and freely with me, our CEO. And we really try to foster that and, and push that. Um, and then profitability was the last one I mentioned, and there is such strength in being profitable. That is the strongest seat you can be in as a business. In my view, there's so much strength in that and building responsibly from there. Um, and, uh, that gives you staying power. And in our business, we need to be around for a really long time for our clients. When they give us money, we need to invest it, care for it, grow it. Um, And and most people want to have a very long-term relationship with those that they're doing business with. So Our clients want to be um, working with us in 20 years, and I want to be working with them in 20 years. And so profitability is that founding principle and the key tenant of of what we strive to, to maintain. I think those are the, the major <laughs> values. And I think overarching that, um, and I don't have this in our founding principles, but it's something that I know you also believe in, is um, being highly selective with the external people we work with, right? We have, we have just nurtured and been very slow to hire internally. And we've built this team that feels more like family um, than, than employees. And that has just been a stunning success. But you must be as, as equally protective as who you work with externally. Um, and you know, I I think in in my younger years in my career I was much more focused on fast growth. And you know I would I would think to prob almost do a deal with anyone if the numbers made sense and you know they checked out with references. If if they weren't even that nice of a person,
1: ah, right. a great
0: deal. Right. Let's get it done. It's going to create wealth and prosperity, and it did. But it also created a really not fun work environment for a lot of people in doing those deals it wasn't fun for me to work with that counterparty it created a drag on the rest of my day and i wouldn't be as present in the office with my employees or i wouldn't be as sharp later in the day because it drained me having to have those calls with you know that um external person who wasn't um in an, an a grade human and so that's something it that took me a long time to learn in my career and I think you learned it, um, you had learned it by the time we started working together. And I think that was something that you um, helped teach me in our time working together was we could be more selective. And I'm I'm grateful that I get to sit in the seat I sit in today, owning my own business, you know, owning the equity of this company um, and not answering to other people with growth goals um, and having to sacrifice on that uh, principle of working with wonderful people externally as well. Um just for the sake of of um hitting internal numbers. We just don't. Right.
1: Oh, I love that. And it just it you can hear it in your voice, like you can hear it in people's voices and and in how they live. And we were talking about this before about how in a way it's a lifestyle business but not maybe in like the Instagram way but in in like the in like the true sense of the word like a lot of our investors are working professionals like doctors and dentists and lawyers and their work is not separate from themselves and so this idea of the relationships being so important because they are are like they're form the foundation of your day like transaction aside it's who you work with that that energy has a huge impact on your, your life, how you feel, how you go, how you are when you go home. It's a huge, it's a huge principle. I see a lot more people shifting this way and it makes me really happy because I've, you know, I've always, I've always been a big believer in like, yes, be a good person and work with good people and be aligned to your values. And when you align to your values, you will find other
0: people who have aligned values. I was just going to say that out of For me, it's been incredible over the last two years running this business, what comes to us now. Like the people that come to us and have come, uh, uh, saw after our business, it's incredible um, compared to, you know, in previous iterations of my life where I had been, what flowed to me versus what flows to me now, just by waving the flag as the nice guys. You know, we are the nice guys and the nice guys want to work with the nice guys and they come to us. So built a really amazing ecosystem where, um, you know, we invest in deals with other counterparties where, you know, I'm proud to work with them and grateful. So it's, yeah, and care, you know, caring about family, caring about uh, this, these businesses, as you said, it's, I don't like the idea of work-life balance. I like mm-hmm. life. Like, I choose to do this because I love it. I love coming to my office every morning. I like investing in these deals. I'm intellectually challenged. I absolutely adore our clients. We have incredible investors in our fund, and you know, I love having those calls throughout the day. And so, I, I really like to dispel the idea of work life balance and how do you manage it? Uh, Jillian is this, you know this you know run you run this uh, you know big this business and then you, know, you have your home life and it must be really hard. How do you exercise? It's no, this is. All we, how we choose to spend our day and our time is um, is our life. That's your life. The whole, every part of it is not work and not life. It's just all life. And how do you want to build that? And um, what does that want? What What do you want that to look like? And you know, it's uh, it's incredible when you meet other aligned people who have a similar view. And then your work becomes your life, and your life is your life, and it's all um, you know, happy and good.
2: Isn't it crazy to how quickly? That dynamic has has kind of changed, right? You know, I go back to 2010 when I'm coming out of law school and I just think about the environment that I was in, you know, at this New York City law firm and just, you know, how I felt about interacting with, you know, the partners I worked for or clients and just kind of what the the demands were, right? And in a matter of, of really 10 years, and, and obviously we're a little bit of a self-selecting group here, right? But there really has been this Massive shift in terms of you know who people want to work with, and and when I think about putting our team together, it's always this idea of like you know we're hiring people to you know to do a job, but we're a small team, and like we need that person to fill in other gaps and and really just explore and be creative and find other ways to kind of help this business grow, and and our thought has always been you know this only makes sense uh, you know in a world where um, you know, everyone who's who's part of the team you know, feels comfortable kind of spreading their wings for, you know, lack of a better way of saying it.
0: Oh, yes. And, and the, you know, over talked about, but just as equally important topic of it's being OK to it's OK to make mistakes. Whereas I remember in my investment banking days, probably very synonymous to your big law days, our law firm days was uh, the idea that making a mistake was the end of your career oh, my goodness, so why would you try, hard, try new things or take on bigger parts of the deal that you didn't know how to do really well? It, was, it, was a, it didn't foster that um, type of spirit, whereas you know, I'm proud that inside our firm, and it sounds like inside of yours, uh, employees ask to try new parts of our business. You know, our operations um, woman uh, here, Sarah, who is what I call this incredible utility player, she can learn anything. And uh, if I'm bandwidth constrained in a part of the business, she shadows and learns and then takes it on and may make a mistake or two. But actually, Sarah really doesn't. She's not human. She's superhuman. <laughs> and, but she, I, I know that she feels comfortable making a mistake um, and that you know, we'll, we're just thrilled that she's learning and trying a different area of the business. But it's, um, it's important.
2: Yeah, I mean, a lot of what we're doing is, is new sometimes I forget that, right? You know, yeah, just, yeah. people have been investing in real estate for forever, right? But there is no playbook for, you know, accredited investors kind of getting into these types of institutional real estate deals in the same way there's no playbook for, you know, the, the types of kind of credit deals that, that you're working on. We're, we're writing uh, it today. And so for us, yeah. it's always, you know, it's not only, hey, like you maybe want to consider working in a different part of the company. It's, if you want to be a part of this team, like that's, that's a prerequisite, right? Like we want you to dip your, your toes into anything that, you know, you feel comfortable. And the reality is things you don't feel comfortable are are areas for you to to grow into. And the things that come out of that are are kind of amazing. Right. And like I said, there's not this playbook. And so, you know, if you can come up with something that makes sense, that adds value, you know, that we can standardize Uh, with technology over the course of time, like that, that's a huge win for us.
1: All right. Well, I want to be super respectful of your time, Jillian, because uh, you know and I know that we could talk forever. Um, and um, so it's just been, um, gosh, it's been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast and over the past few years to, you know, sort of have these parallel paths in our careers and to see you grow and thrive. It's, it's just really beautiful to see. And it, I'm really happy. For the growth of your business, because again, it's like these parallel these parallel paths. And um, so, I just want to ask, like, one last question: If you have any um, tips or insights for investors who are not professionals in the space, like you or like us, um, is there anything like parting words of wisdom about about how they should be? looking at or evaluating from a top top line perspective making new investments in a space like real estate or alternatives that is so different so far removed from the common etfs that they may be investing in
0: sure so you know the the age old wisdom that i actually remember my grandfather giving me when i was a girl was try to make money while you're sleeping and i think you know fortunately For the accredited investor and, um, you know, folks in a similar seat who have spare capital to invest, you know, trying to find ways to make money uh, has become uh, easier than ever with opportunities like alpha investing or like your asset management. They can go and access alternative investments um, that aren't simply like a Goldman package credit product where there's 10 layers of fees and they don't know what's in it. And so I think it's critical to be getting into those types of investments that you can understand. And that's I guess that's my best piece of advice is invest in things you can understand and you can learn to understand. Um, and do it with trusted professionals who you align with, you know, their, uh, their values resonate with you and, and really vet those counterparties. I say don't invest in something if you don't understand it. Take the time to learn it, listen to the webinars, um, you know, read material on it, do follow up calls with you know people on the alpha investing team, for example, or you know with with uh, people on the investor relations team at pure asset management and i um i I just critically uh, focus on that because I think that's how we got into some of the issues we did uh, in the financial crisis was when we all invested in things we didn't understand and then uh, you know diversify, diversify, diversify is another kind of pop out answer to this, but um, I truly believe that invest in a variety of uh, different projects and don't put all eggs in one basket and um, and and work with different management teams. Right. So, um, you know, you can do all of your real estate investing in the equity portion through alpha investing. And then it's great that alpha investing doesn't pretend to understand stock investing. <laughs> so go find a great stock manager and go put your, that portion of your portfolio with a different management team. Right. That's another way to diversify. Yeah. So, um, yeah, yeah, diversify, diversify and make money while you. Play. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's always back to the basics, isn't it? Right.
0: <laughs> Keep it simple. Yeah. And I think I forgot that we were doing the podcast for a while when you started your wrap up moment here uh, a few moments <laughs> ago. I laughed when you said, thank you for being on the podcast. I, said, oh, I thought thought we were catching up, <laughs> but <laughs> You're, you must. You are very good at at running a podcast because I forgot. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> well, we have to catch up personally.
1: Um, aside from this, anyway, but for, for yeah. now, um, Jillian, thank you so much for being on the podcast for sharing your wisdom and your knowledge, um, your insights, and and really like your heart and your soul. It just it just comes through. Um, so thank you so so much again for being on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. Thanks for tuning in to Real Wealth, Real Health. We hope that you've enjoyed today's episode and found it both informative and insightful. We welcome all your questions and your feedback about today's episode. And especially we welcome your questions about specific topics that you would like us to cover. So shoot us an email at podcast at alphai.com. And if you have a moment, we really appreciate ratings and reviews as it helps us grow our online community and our interactions with you. And we'll also be linking to a number of relevant articles on topics that we might have touched on during our conversations. Some of them are broad, some of them are technical, but we're always aiming to provide information that helps you better understand the mechanics of building this healthy financial foundation, especially if you're looking to do this with real estate.